of that song I love so dearly. I think about what the songwriter would write, and as we sang that in the sweet by and by, it says, To our bountiful Father above, we will offer our tribute of praise. Perhaps on the drive over here, you noticed that it was a little more wet on the ground than it has been. When we think about the natural providences that God has set up in store, thinking all the way back to Genesis, the eighth chapter, specifically at verse 22, where he would explain that seed time and harvest would remain as long as the earth would stand. Thinking about how Paul was reproving the behavior of some of those individuals in Acts the 14th chapter, making reference to God leaving himself not without a witness, that he gave us fruitful seasons, discussing how the rain would descend from heaven to fill the ground, to be able to bring forth crops so he can sustain his creation through sustenance. When we think about here in California, as it's been declared so many seasons to be a drought, as we've been so long time without rain, we are able to see the precipitation and understand that our Father in heaven surely is bountiful. We've been discussing judgment this month. This morning, we dealt with justice and judgment, tracking some historical biblical figures like that man, Abraham. Abraham in Genesis, the 18th chapter and verse 19 for your notes, how God was going to choose this man, Abraham, to be a king, to be a father of many nations, many great nations, if you will. Because of the way he was going to bring forth children, even before he had children, was going to bring forth children. It was going to order his household and was going to teach his own household justice and judgment. We think about what the Bible would say about another key biblical figure, that man, David, in 2 Samuel, the 15th chapter at verse number 8. How this man, David, I might be dyslexic there. I believe it might be 2 Samuel, the 8th chapter, rather, in verse 15. But that man, David, there would be uh, reigning in Israel and he would be executing justice and judgment. We go a little bit deeper and you would see that the psalmist, this man, David, would want this even of his own son. We would see as we studied first Kings, the 10th chapter, where the queen of Sheba, hearing the fame and the renown of this man, Solomon, would come all the way to Jerusalem to hear of his wisdom. She heard the fame, but when she got to him, when she discussed all the questions that she had on her heart, when she heard and sat and dined with Solomon, she declared that it was only half declared to her the greatness and the wisdom of King Solomon. But according to 1 Kings, the 10th chapter, looking at around verse number nine, you would see that this man, King Solomon, was there to execute justice and judgment in all of Israel. We spoke a little bit about how we, in our walk, must be familiar with this justice and judgment. We went back to some of the writings of King Solomon in in Proverbs, the 21st chapter, looking at verse 23, how God wants his people, God wants his creation, God wants those following after him to execute justice and judgment. So much so that the Lord... It's more acceptable, as Proverbs, the 21st chapter at verse 23 would say, it's more acceptable unto the Lord for us to be regarding justice and judgment properly than even to lay our hands to the sacrifice. 
Nevertheless, we'll finish out that theme going over to the book of Psalms. And in this time, we're going to the 89th division of Psalms. In Psalms 89, you might remember... The psalmist would speak on this wise, looking at verse number 14, the 89th division of Psalm, looking at verse 14, a little bit more into the context of justice and judgment. It says in verse 14 that justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. The psalmist speaking about God, the father, justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne, mercy and truth shall go before thy face. I believe not only David was familiar with this concept, but as we speak a little bit this evening on judgment a little further, we're going to talk about our regard towards judgment, how we ought to love and have a great affinity towards judgment. As God's people, those seeking to follow after his will, we must be familiar with his judgment and we must also love it. I think about another biblical figure, that man Moses, thinking about the second Psalm of Moses, not saying that he has a book of Psalms, but thinking about that psalm, that song that he would sing in Exodus, the 32nd chapter. Going back there, I remember one specific verse. It was about verse four. As Moses enters into this psalm, as he's coming out and delivering the children from Egypt, triumphing over the enemy. You would think about this psalm in I said Exodus, excuse me, Deuteronomy. I do that often. But in Deuteronomy, the 32nd chapter, that second song of Moses, you might remember there in verse 4, where the Bible would speak on this wise. It says, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain. My speech shall distill as dew. And, excuse me, as the small rain upon the tender herb and as the shadows upon the grass, because I will publish the name of the Lord. Ascribe ye greatness unto our God. Moses would say about our God in verse four that he is our rock. His work is perfect for all of his ways are judgment. He is a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Thinking about God, who is our rock, how his work is perfect And how all of his ways, our judgment or our judgment. We think about we as a people of God needing to understand this vital point that all of God's ways are judgment. So when we look into the holy and divine writ that he has given to us, when we look into the scriptures that he has allowed us to be able to read, to be able to study, to be able to meditate on. We have to understand that justice and judgment comes through his word. If this God whose throne And whose habitation and whose ways our judgment would give us his word. It must also be true that his word would be focused in judgment. I think a little bit later in the psalmist and what he would say, going back to the book of Psalms. I know we're flipping around this evening, but this time let's go to the 99th division. When we go to the 99th division of Psalms. Being able to tie some of these concepts that we've spoke about this morning and on this evening. Not only justice and judgment, but now loving judgment. It is indicative, it is imperative that we have an affinity and that we love judgment. In the book of Psalms, 
this time the 99th division, you would see there that the psalmist would say that the Lord reigns. Let not the people tremble is what the psalmist would say. He says, he sitteth between the cherubims, let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the people. Let them praise thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. The king's strength also loves judgment. Think about what he's saying here in the 99th division of Psalm. He's saying the king's strength also loves judgment. Thou dost establish equity. You executeth judgment and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt ye the Lord our God and worship at his footstool, for he is holy. He would go in and speak about Moses and Aaron among his priests and Samuel among them that call upon his name. They called upon the Lord and he answered them. He spake unto them in the cloudy pillar and he kept his testimonies, the ordinance that he gave them. Thou answered them, Lord, O Lord, our God, you were a God or thou wast a God that forgavest them, though thou tookest vengeance of their inventions. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. The verse we really want to focus on here is verse 4. About the king's strength. In order for a king to reign. In order for a king to reign, he must understand who God is. He must understand that all of his ways are judgment. Just as Moses understood in Deuteronomy the 32nd chapter at verse 4. He must also, the king's strength, love judgment. I think about what David would say in another context. Think about what David would say of a king, of a righteous king, of one that would rule. Going over there to the book of 2 Samuel this time. 2 Samuel, the 23rd chapter. As you turn there, what's transpiring is just after David would pen his psalm, as David was nigh unto death, As David was getting ready to establish the kingdom for his son Solomon in his stead, we go over to 2 Samuel, the 23rd chapter. And in 2 Samuel, the 23rd chapter, you see some of the famous last words of David. In verse 1, it says, Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, And the man who was raised up on high and anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel said this, The Spirit of the Lord spake my me, And his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me. In verse 3, he that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. He shall be as a light of the morning when the sun rises, even a morning without clouds, as a tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house be not so with God, Yet he hath made me with an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. David is saying here in the latter part of his life, as he's nigh unto death, understanding a secession plan, understanding who was going to have to rule over God's people. He says in verse three, a very pivotal point for us all to consider The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me, he that ruleth over men must be just. He must rule in the fear of God. I think about this and I think about also what we just read in the 99th division of Psalm, specifically at verse four, that the king's strength loves judgment. Thinking about the peace that would come 
to a nation if a king loves judgment, if a king, according to verse three in Second Samuel 23, is just. It is very, very important. I think about that servant that Isaiah would speak about in Isaiah, the 42nd chapter, that servant that was going to come into this world. You might remember over in Isaiah, the 42nd chapter, this prophecy of this servant that was going to come into this world in order to rule. I think about no other than that man, Jesus Christ. Let's go there really quickly for a moment and start working towards the concluding points. In Isaiah, the 42nd chapter, he would open up by saying, behold, my servant. Whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delights. This is Isaiah or the Lord speaking on or through the mouth of Isaiah. I have put my spirit upon him. Isaiah, the 42nd chapter. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Think about the beauty of what Isaiah is depicting here. He's explaining that In the hereafter, someone is to come into this world. Someone is to come into this world. In verse number two, we see that he's not going to come of any reputation. He shall not cry. He shall not lift up his voice. He shall not cause his voice to be heard in the street. But rather, he's going to bring forth judgment, according to verse three, unto truth. In verse five, it says, thus saith the God, or thus saith God the Lord. He that created the heavens and stretched them out. And hath he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it and the spirit to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee a covenant for the people or of the people for the light of the Gentiles to open the blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. We see this beautiful promise. This beautiful promise, this beautiful covenant of one that's going to come, a servant that's going to bring forth judgment, who's going to be a light unto the Gentiles. We think about no other than that man, Jesus Christ. All of the concepts that we've cited thus far, that God in all of his ways, our rock, according to Deuteronomy, the 32nd chapter at verse four, all of his ways are judgment. Thinking about in, or excuse me, Psalm, the 99th division in verse number four, pertaining to The king's strength, how the king's strength ought to love judgment. We think about what David would say in 2 Samuel, the 23rd chapter at verse number three, that any man ruling over men must be just. Now we think about the prophecy of one that's going to come into this world. That man, Christ Jesus, was he not a just man? That man, Christ Jesus, we already discussed this morning that in his humiliation, according to Acts, the eighth chapter at verse 33, In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away from the earth. Why? Because there was people that were so bloodthirsty, people that didn't like what he was teaching. People didn't like that he was the son of God. People thought that he was exalting himself, but he was sent into this world by his father. This is so important. As he's sitting there on that judgment seat 
As he's in that judgment hall, we discussed a little bit before, before, but while he was on the seat or while he's on the judgment seat standing before that man, Pilate, don't you remember over there in Matthew, the 27th chapter, really the context is verses 15 and following, but specifically we're focusing on Matthew, the 27th chapter and verse number 19, when Pilate sitting there in the judgment hall would receive word. Some of you brothers need to listen to your wives from time to time. In Matthew, the 27th chapter at verse number 19, he would receive, receive word from his wife who had sent unto him, have nothing to do with this just man, this man, Jesus Christ. I've been suffered or I've suffered many things in a dream in reference to this man, Christ Jesus, have nothing to do with this just man. Pilate's wife, a Gentile, understood who Christ was. How much more so should the Jews have understood who he was? These bloodthirsty Jews, so thirsty for Christ, this man who did nothing wrong. As a custom was, there came a time where they would release one of the prisoners. Don't you remember Barabbas, who was a man that moved sedition, who was a man that was a robber? They wanted Barabbas to be released and they wanted Jesus to be stayed and crucified. What is that like? That's like for many of you news bluffs. An individual in Russia called the merchant of death standing right next to Christ and being released instead of Christ Jesus. This man, they tried to conspire to find something against him, but two witnesses could not even agree on what he had done wrong. They released and they called for this man Barabbas to be released and this man Jesus Christ to be crucified. Nevertheless, I think about that just man. I think about the words that the psalmist would say as he's nigh to the end of his life. Second Samuel, the 23rd chapter and verse number three, a man ruling over the people must be just. What better man to rule over us than that man, Christ Jesus? That was that man, Christ Jesus, who Peter was speaking so boldly on the day of Pentecost. The same Jesus of Nazareth, according to Acts two and verse thirty six who you took with wicked hands, you took him and you crucify him. God has raised him up to be both Lord and ruler, both Christ, the Messiah and ruler. That man, Jesus Christ reigning over us. If we love judgment, if we want to be as kings, if we want our strength to be as kings, what does the 99th division of Psalms specifically at verse four have to do with us? How are we kings? Well, this same man, Jesus Christ, according to Revelation, the first chapter, according to Revelation, the first chapter, this man, Jesus Christ, according to verse five, has washed us in his blood. The revelator would say that in verse five of chapter one, this man, Jesus Christ would have washed us in his own blood. In verse number six, he has made us to be kings and priests unto God and his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Christ has made us to be kings and priests. We ought to act like it. If we want to be kings, if we want to be priests, we ought to love the judgment of the Lord. We ought to love the fact that the Lord and all of his ways are judgment. We ought to love the fact that he has gave his judgments for us to be able to read, to be able to understand, to be able to meditate on, to be able to apply to our own lives. So we can be that spiritual man, according to 1 Corinthians, the second chapter at verse number 15 and 16, judging all things, escaping the judgment of others, spending our time, ordering our steps according to God has for us. 
The king's strength is to love judgment. We ought to love judgment. We ought to love when the just would rule the earth, when the just would rule over nations. But the greatest affinity we ought to have is for that man, Christ Jesus, who would lay down his life for us. I believe the concluding song or the song of invitation is what a friend that we have in Jesus. I think about that friendship that we have in Christ Jesus. It's no greater friendship that we could ever have. Certainly, we may love our husbands. We may love our wives on this earth. But even that friendship couldn't amount to the friendship that we have in Christ Jesus. Because I remember in John, the 15th chapter, specifically at verse 13, the Bible would say greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. John, the 15th chapter would discuss that friendship that we have. You will keep my commandments if you love me. John 15, 14. If you are my friends, you are going to hear my word. You're going to apply it to your lives. This is so important. When we understand who that just man was, (laughs) just like Pilate's wife, we need to understand that we need to have nothing to do with him and his crucifixion. We need to have nothing to do with putting him back on that cross, as Hebrews, the sixth chapter, verses four through six would say. We need not to willfully sin according to Hebrews, the 10th chapter and verse 26. There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins if we are willfully sinning. Hebrews, the sixth chapter, verses four through six. After we were once enlightened, after we were once made aware of what Christ Jesus did for, did for us. And we continue to go about living our lives in a reckless manner, in a manner insufficient to the will of God. It's almost like we're putting Christ Jesus right back on that cross. Instead, we need to have that, that, that wonderful message of Christ Jesus needs to have an effect on our hearts. It needs to have an effect on our hearts. We need to glory in the fact that he was a just man willing to lay down his life for us. Willing to reign over us. And willing for us to have the opportunity of eternal life. We can only have that opportunity of eternal life if we've obeyed that one gospel. Why do I say that there's one gospel? Well, in Galatians, the first chapter, verses 6 through 8. Paul would be explaining the same. There is not another gospel. There is the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What he did coming into this world to hung, bleed and die for us. We have to obey that one gospel. Let's continue to be consistent with numerical. If there's one gospel, then there has to be one result of the gospel. The result of the gospel should be eternal life to he or she that follows. We have to hear that gospel. We have to believe it with all of our heart. Come repenting of our sins. Dying to that old man, which is to say that man of sin, we're no longer following after those ways. We're no longer influenced by the vanity of our mind, according to Ephesians, the fourth chapter at verse 17. But we're walking in the newness of life, knowing that our old man is crucified with Christ. That's what Paul would say in Galatians, the second chapter, verse number 20. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. We die to sin. We die to sin so we can live unto righteousness. That's what Romans, the sixth chapter is articulating. Nevertheless, hearing that gospel, believing it, repenting of our sins, confessing that Jesus Christ is the Lord and being baptized, not into any frivolous baptism, not into any old church that we just find in the yellow pages. You guys are looking at me crazy. We don't use yellow pages anymore. I know we have iPhones, but nevertheless, there's one church and you don't find it in the yellow pages, but you find it in your Bible. 
It is the church that Christ purchased with his own blood. The church that belongs to him. That's why we call ourselves not church of your choice, but church of Christ. It's the body of Christ. We need to be baptized into that one body. That's what 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, verse number 13 would say. That's what Paul was asking those individuals in Acts 19 chapter. They understood the concept of baptism, but they were focused on John's baptism. They were focused on the wrong baptism. Paul would ask them, unto what then were you baptized? That's what we need to start asking people. Unto what then were you baptized? We, and they ought to articulate, we were baptized for the remission of sins. We were baptized into that one body. We were baptized into Christ. They should be able to show you and we should be able to show them in scripture. It should be able to be synchronized. So that we can be of the same mind. First Corinthians, the first chapter, verse number 10, and of the same judgment. That's another lesson for another time. That is the lesson. What a friend we have in Jesus. Again, greater man, greater love has no man than this, and a man lay down his life for a friend's. Let's consider those words as we together stand and sing the song of the Savior's invitation.